0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 and find verse 19, Ephesians 2:19. Uh, maybe this is too late, but you know how it is approaching Christmas, we get so fragmented sometimes. We get going in so many different directions. The truth is is, we overcommit ourselves. And pretty soon, our life isn't about Jesus anymore, let alone the season where we're remembering him. And do you realize that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else? And you might be saying no to something that you really ought to be pouring your time and and your, your attention into. Are you getting that? I'm speaking to you from my own life. I know how it is. Things get crowded. There are a lot of demands, there's a lot of desires. And, and I, wanna, I wanna live for the Lord, but then approaching the new year, if the Lord gives us, gives us a new year, and thinking about, am I, am I spending my life the way I'm supposed to be spending it? Because I don't wanna be marching according to just the beat of society or, or what's around me, those pressures, but I wanna say no when I need to say no, so that I can say yes, to that which is good and right for my, for my family, if you're married, for your, for your marriage. There needs to be a lot of intentionality, like on purpose. We know these things are good, so we're gonna pour into them. Am I the only one who sees that crowding in, in their life? You said yes, obviously. You didn't answer my question. Are you saying, <laughs> no, you're not the only one. And, and I wake up at the end of the day or at the end of the month or whatever and go, why, why am I spending my time this way? When when I really know that God wants me to, my kids might say, "Just chill." Well, I don't want to just chill, but but there is something very good about being intentional and pouring into that which which God wants me to be doing, and not getting so frazzled. And so maybe you, you need to cancel some things. Maybe that would be rude, but it, it's the way it is. And and let's let's set our lives on Jesus to love, to serve, to live. Um, let's ask him just now to um, bless his word as it goes out. Lord, I know that all of your word is good. And this morning we have before us this portion. And we ask that you would make our hearts soft to receive it. I thank you so much for, for giving your grace to me, Lord, not when I was near, but when I was so far away. And, and I pray, Lord, that I would remember that and and I would remember how I've drawn near, Lord, and as your people, that as your children, as your adopted sons and daughters, that we would remember that you've brought us in by your very own blood, by your very life, Lord. And that now we get this incredible relationship, privilege, abundance of, of presence, Lord, with you. And, and we come anticipating and excited for what you desire to show us about your character, about your church, and about ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners. So the word is saying you used to be strangers, you used to be foreigners far away from God, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Now you're in the house, now you're a part of the household when you were at one time alienated. Now look at what it says in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. There's some imagery here. There's a picture that God is giving to us and it's the picture of a holy house, a holy house for God. Yes, it is imagery, but it's not just for the sake of imagery. There is a deep meaning and a strong application and a function to this holy house of God that we will learn about at the end of chapter 2 here in Ephesians. Number one, the holy house's cornerstone. Who is that? We touched on it last week. It's Jesus. The house wouldn't be strong, it wouldn't be straight, it wouldn't be level, it it wouldn't be right if it were not for our cornerstone, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This cornerstone is a reference, this mention of cornerstone is a reference to Psalm 118. From what I could find, and I searched high and low, this is the Old Testament passage that is used in the New Testament more than any other passage. To me, that means something. In fact, Jesus himself talked about this passage from Psalm 118 three different times in Matthew in Mark and in Luke. And then the apostle Peter speaks of the cornerstone in Acts chapter four when he preaches. And then he uses the cornerstone again in his first epistle in the second chapter. And now we have Paul here speaking of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, taking that Psalm 118 And bringing it to life so that we know what it means. All of the Bible is important. Yet there's an emphasis here that I know we should notice. That should be recognized. What is God saying to us in this Jesus, the cornerstone? Let's go back to Psalm 118 where it says in verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing It is marvelous in our eyes. So, Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. That means it is a portion of the Old Testament that prophetically points forward to Jesus and gives us details about who he is, his ministry, and how he's going to be either received or rejected. Why did Jesus quote this psalm on three different occasions? Because he was saying this that's me, I'm the cornerstone that the Psalmist spoke of a thousand years ago. How about Peter? Why did he point people back to Psalm 118? Because he was saying, Jesus is the one. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the Messiah. He's the cornerstone that we've been waiting for. Also, Paul, why did he pen this here for the Ephesians and for us? Because he is saying, Jesus is that rock. Now, even though Jesus is the perfect rock, even though he is faithful and loving and holy, even though in the structural sense, he's he's level, he's even, he's strong, he's solid, the word tells us, did it not tell us in Psalm 118, that he's gonna be rejected by his own, that he will not be received by many. And it's not because he's not, a solid stone. It's not because he isn't good. This rejection was put in the prophecy. He's rejected today. Jesus is by many. They will not believe. He was rejected by his own. He was rejected by the most, by most of the nation of Israel. They would not see his true identity. Jesus, perfect love given. Jesus, perfect grace extended. The nail scarred hands, the The miraculous, the hope, pushed away and rejected. Rejection is one of the most miserable things that we'll ever suffer. And we take rejection personally quite often. It's hard to not take it personally. But I want you to think not about your own rejection, but about the rejection of Jesus. The one who who loves the whole world the one who has been calling and and reaching and demonstrating his love, that so many say, no, no, Jesus. No, get away, stay away. I don't want any part of you. Why the rejection? Why even the hatred? Why the animosity towards the Lord, who is so gracious, so loving, so merciful? The beginning of Psalm 118 speaks of the mercies of the Lord and how you and I just wake up every day We're like, there he is again. He was with me through the watches of the night. And again, look how faithful he is to me. Why would somebody push away and just say, no, no, no. I don't want him. I don't believe in him. Peter wrote of the cornerstone. First Peter chapter two, verse six. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. That means I lay in the sense of, I set the foundation stone. I I put it in place, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Is he not precious to you, Christian? Jesus, your rock. He's the rock of your salvation. Oh, how precious our Lord is to us. It's sweet. But to those who are disobedient... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. It was prophesied. There will be rejection of the rock. And then the analogies about rocks just keep rolling in. Because did you see how it was put here in First Peter chapter 2? that they're stumbling. Have you ever stumbled over a rock? That they're stumbling over Jesus. Our property, my property has a ton of rocks on it. It's ironic because we live on Sandy Way and we have almost nothing but rocks. <laughs> they're just everywhere. I call the fist size rocks ankle breakers because that's what they are to me. They're just like, you think you've picked them all up and piled them all up, and there's more of them. There's just rocks all over the place. So the Bible says to us that Jesus is a stone of stumbling. There are many in this world, including most of the nation of Israel, that's tripping, stumbling, but they're not tripping over a little fist-sized ankle breaker, a little inconsequential rock that you didn't notice. They're stumbling over the cornerstone. It's like saying, I tripped and stumbled over El Capitan or or Half Dome. I was going along and I didn't see it and I just got tripped up. That's Jesus, the mighty, massive rock of salvation. They're saying, I'm tripping over that. Why don't you just build your life on him? Why don't you just make him your foundation? That's the question. Because he loves you. He cares for you. He gave his life for you. But instead, so many reject. And what do they build on instead? What does the Bible say? The sand. It's ever-changing. It's ever-shifting. Pretty hard to get anything solid on sand. So why the rejection? Think about the cornerstone, the rejection of Jesus, our precious Savior. Why the rejection? Because people, many people, want to build on their own sense of right and wrong. They do not want to build their lives on the clarity of truth that God gives in regards to right and wrong. Instead, many would rather say, I want to march to the beat of my own drum. And it's an ever-changing drum. It's an ever-changing beat. Isn't that exactly what we're seeing with our unbelieving world today? What is right and what is wrong? Well, we can't really define that because it's going to be different next year than it is this year it's going to change it's constantly changing there's no standard for right and wrong are you with me isn't that true because the foundation is no foundation at all it's the foundation of sand this is what it says later in the book Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 if you want to move quickly there you could 4:18 speaking of those who reject Jesus the cornerstone having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. So there it is. Many people don't want to build on the rightness, on the righteousness of Jesus because they love their sin. And if we believe the truth about what God says, then we can't make up our own right and wrong. And we can't change it according to our liking. John 3, 16 and 17 are very famous, and I'm glad that they are. There's a verse, verse 19, that comes shortly after that speaks of this very truth that we, apart from God, we love our sin. It feeds us for a season. It seemingly satisfies us. So this is the cause of much of the rejection of Jesus, the cornerstone. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to live according to God's standard of righteousness. This is what it says in John three nineteen, And this is the condemnation. That means this is what causes people to not be saved. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's what the world is apart from Christ, loving their dark, evil deeds. Will we come where we realize like, I, I do love my sin way too much. And I need to, to love Jesus. I need to come to him and build my life on him instead of making him a stone of stumbling where I'm constantly saying, oh man, I think that's right. What's wrong with God? He gave you a conscience, So many want to build on the sand because they can change it whenever they want. Just this week, two news anchors from a major network, man and woman, committing adultery with each other. It comes out in the news and the network says, they're not going to get disciplined. They're adults. They can do whatever they want to do. It's okay. Is it okay with their prospective spouses? And some would say, well, they have an open marriage. Well, even if it is okay, according to their spouses, that they're cheating on them, it's still not okay with God. You see, he's the rock, and he's the rock of grace, and he's the rock of love, but he's also the rock of truth. And don't you see our world? It's like, oh, no, that's okay. That's acceptable. It's, it's good by us. Let's change. Now, would that be, have been accepted just 20 years ago? I don't think so. But now it's like, it's okay. They're adults. I admit they're adults. I admit they have a choice to make, but I also say that there is a loving, gracious God who is also a judge and he's given us great truth. God forbid we vary from that, but we should build our lives on it. Again, California educational authority is saying it's okay. It's good and right to teach kids that there are many different genders, That's what we should be teaching them, they say. This is our new right. And if you don't believe in this new right, then you're wrong. Would that have been accepted just 20 years ago, even by educational gurus? No, it wouldn't have been. How can it change? How can right and wrong just evolve as time goes by? Aren't you mortified to think what might be considered right by the world in five years? How can that be? Well, because the foundation is one of sand. It's not one of the rock. There are no absolutes. It's ever-changing. So come today and be reminded, Christian, that your life, it's not built on that ever-changing sand. It's not just built on your thoughts. It's not just built on your feelings. It's built on Jesus, the truth giver who saved you. And may we approach this unbelieving world because they're not just a world, they're souls. And part of the way we can appeal to them is morally and say, how is it that right and wrong just keeps changing? Unbelievers can see that. They can see that our world is so-called evolving. So is there really a right and wrong? So if this keeps happening, aren't we just letting people decide for us what is really good and what isn't good? Is there someone who has already told us what is right. Yes, it's Jesus, the cornerstone. Will we be based on the sand of man? Will we morph with men? I don't, I don't like being morphed by men. I want to be transformed by God. I don't want to be conformed to this world. I don't want my family, my marriage, this body, the body of Christ as a whole, to be Conform to this world but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that's according to the cornerstone so look at the sweetness of this jesus himself being the chief cornerstone he's the one we build our lives on his grace on his love and that's not going to go over well with everybody but still where will we stand where will we where will we build i'm starting to talk too fast again have you noticed that it's like you can hold up a sign from the back that says slow down I'm off my heart medicine, so my heart's like up in a good way. So I'm, maybe I can talk faster. I don't know. I'll... <laughs> Point number two, the holy house's foundation. So we had the holy house's cornerstone. And now you'll notice that these verses also speak of the rest of the foundation of God's holy house or his holy households. Who is... Those who, who are those who are part of the remainder of the foundation, according to the word of God here, the apostles and the prophets. Now understand that Jesus being the chief cornerstone, the apostles and the prophets are set according. They take their direction from him. They're set according to his righteousness, not their own. They're lined up with him in the sense of structure and building. He is the standard. He's the control point. And now we have Jesus the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and the prophets are all set in accordance to him. So in what way, when you were studying this, reading ahead, did you ask, like, in what way are the apostles and the prophets? in what way were they foundational to this holy house of God? I consider some of the apostles and prophets. I, I think about Jonah, a prophet. I don't think I would really want to build on Jonah. Or I think about Peter. I mean, Peter was a powerful preacher, but in some ways he was pretty sketchy. I don't know that I would want to build on Peter, but then you also have your Daniels and you're like, that guy's pretty rock solid. And you got your Pauls and you're like, yeah, but I don't see this. And nor does the Bible mean that they're building upon the, the character of the person necessarily but they're building on the work of God through the lives of the apostles and the prophets. And what did God use those apostles and prophets for? Well, he poured his holy word through their pens, did he not? And in that way, we are here now reading an epistle that was written by an apostle. And it's very foundational to who we are in the holy house of God. Such it was true, it was also true with the prophets who gave us these prophecies pointing to Jesus, speaking the truth of the word of God to us. So the church has this foundation of the word of God given to us through the lives and the gifting and the inspiration of the apostles and the prophets. Now, God also used the apostles and the prophets to sort out a mystery. And if you've been studying, maybe you went a bit into chapter three, not realizing that we didn't finish chapter two, but there's a mystery in chapter three And part of that mystery was how is God going to take Gentiles and Jews and bring them together in one house, in one body, in one love, in one grace? How's he going to do that? You see, when Jesus ascended to heaven after he rose from the dead, he told the apostles, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, didn't he? But at that time, as they're standing there, uh, looking up, they didn't have a clue what that meant. Go and make disciples of all nations. They're just, they recorded it. So you know that they were listening. God brought it to their memory. But as far as making disciples of all nations, even Gentiles, they didn't know how to do that. They weren't even sure they wanted to do that. We look at the life of Peter. But here, God used the apostles, their lives, their writings, And their callings to teach how God would bring Jews and Gentiles together. Did He not? Here it is in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4, and the very end of chapter verse 4. The mystery of Christ, there is the mystery. How is God going to do this? Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men? As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. So early on, this mystery really was mystifying to people when God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. He was like, that's great. I don't know what it means. I'm not planning on reaching out to any Gentile nations, but now Jesus made this known through the apostles. The apostles wanted to exclude other nations, but God used especially Peter and then later Paul to explain how the Jewish people and the Gentile people would be united in the church. And I consider how God told Peter to go to Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman general, a centurion. How he was on that roof and he got that of Simon the Tanner and he got this vision and he he said... Kept saying to God, no, Lord, that's unclean. So he was revealing to the apostle how this mystery would be made known, was he not? And then Peter went to the house of Cornelius and he saw that these Gentiles were filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said, wow. So that's God laying the foundation of his holy house through his apostles, is it not? And now we have Paul writing of it here, him being the apostle to the Gentiles, Now, consider the apostles and the prophets. I don't see that there are apostles today in a foundational sense, the way it is written here. The foundation has already been laid. And I thank God for the solid foundation of his holy house. But when people claim apostleship, I just don't go for it. Every once in a while, I have somebody come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Eddie, I'm Apostle Bob. And I'm like, great. Because I believe what the Bible says, that in the new Jerusalem, there will be written on those 12 gates and on those 12 foundations, the names of the apostles. And I don't think God's going to do some kind of addition and write Bob and Bill and Fred and Ed on there. These apostles were fundamentally and foundationally used by God at the beginning of God's holy house. And so we see, and same with prophecy in one sense, the gift of prophecy is certainly in the word of God, but prophets in the sense that they would lay this foundation, that's something that's already been laid for us. And it's rich. It's deep. I thank God for the prophetic record that points to Christ and teaches us these things. So we see the use of those apostles and prophets in the holy structure that God is speaking about right here. Now, when I was first envisioning this house, I was thinking about the houses, the rock houses that would have been on the coast of of the Sea of Galilee. And they had these rock houses and they usually had wooden roofs and they would, but really it says Holy Temple. Do you see that in your Bible? And I think about Jesus instead there with the apostles and they said to Jesus, look at these stones. Look at how massive they are. So it's a picture of, of this very strong, architecturally sound temple that God doesn't live in that structure, but he lives in us. Massive stone, Jesus the cornerstone, fitted together in this tight manner, this holy temple that is to last throughout the ages. Number three, we've already done the holy house's cornerstone, then we did the holy house's foundation. Now we're to the holy house's walls. Because you and I get to be a part of the holy household of God. What does it say about the other rocks? The word in in these verses at the end of Ephesians 2. It says that that they're alive. They're living stones. We'll learn about that if you look at what the word of God says. But it says that they're fitted together. That literally means that God's house is put together like a jigsaw puzzle. It's put together with intricate care, each rock having its own shape, but put together in a manner by the master mason as he lays out that wall and puts it together. All fitted, all different sizes of rocks, different shapes fitted together. Now, the enemy wants us to be floating, And the Lord, by his design, wants us to be fitted together with his people into the walls of his holy house, his holy temple. In other parts of the Bible, we're called members that are fitted together and functioning. Here we get the word saints also. First Peter chapter two, verse four. Coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house. Living stones. Normally, rocks aren't alive. So this is supernatural. We're to have all of the solid qualities of a stone you know, used and fitted together in that wall. But we're alive in the Lord, not dead, not stagnant, not inflexible. God fitting us together and building the wall of his holy house, building the perimeter of his holy temple. When you put rock together, you find it, when you see a good rock wall, it's it's according to the shape they lock together, strong and stable. That is God's design for us, that we would be interlocked on him and in him. But so many Christians are like lone rocks out, detached, doing their own thing, like body parts that are detached from the body and therefore of no use or of of little use. Now, I realize when it comes to you and me that there's this fierce sense of independence and that really appeals to my flesh but it is it's not god's design god's design is a holy house of living stones fitted together and it's a shame when we don't lock together for very long the way that we should now let's face it i got it right here in my notes we get rubbed the wrong way. And I'm not saying that Christianity is all about organized religion. What I'm submitting to you is that God has a structure and it's biblical. I'm not out to say, oh, it's, it's gotta be this hierarchy and all that. I'm looking at God's structure and I know that the Bible is saying that we're supposed to be a part of that. But our fierce sense of independence causes us to be way too disconnected sometimes. So we're not really put together the way that we should be to be that holy temple for the spirit. Are you a part of that scriptural structure? If you don't like that, you know, though, and I do, I have an aversion to organized religion, but I'm asking you, isn't there a structure in the Bible when, when you look at the body of Christ, because this is the church, isn't it? And there is a structure to it. And it's described for us in a very connected manner. Like, are you a part of that scriptural structure? Now, I admit that, that we could organize some some placation. What I mean is we can say, like, oh, but really, when it comes to being fitted together, this has to do with functioning as the holy house of God. As a church, we're also the body, and we're supposed to be serving, functioning, serving to the glory of God. And so being a part of things, yeah, it's being around each other, but it's it's serving. And whenever we are not consistently serving in some manner, we're going to feel disconnected from the wall. And that is not the truth. When we won't say, you know what, I'm in. Now, maybe this is not the body for you. This is, this fellowship is not the place for you. But there's got to be a place to soak. They call it plugging in today. Where are you plugged in? I guess it's like, but there's got to be a place. And I'm appealing to you through the scriptures and the truth that's here that you can plug in, that you can be built into that wall, which is all on Jesus himself and the solid foundation of the apostles and the prophets by design. That's who we're supposed to be. And when we're not fitted together, it's not how it's supposed to be. The Lord wants to use us for his dwelling place. Did you notice also that your sanctification is part of how the house is built? It's in verse 21, Ephesians two twenty-one, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The word says that you and I are to be holy people, that we're to be holy as God is holy. So part of us being fitted together is that God is purifying us. He's sanctifying us. It's a process that happens in our lives because we're believers. And when you're built into this holy house, there's chiseling that takes place. There's forming that takes place. And that is rarely comfortable or easy. When God is refining your life, are you eager to be refined? (laughs) Do you pray? Oh Lord, refine me. If you do be ready for what's going to come because the Lord is going to take our lives and and move them and change them and fit them and put them in a place. And that is not according to, to my comfort. It's not according to my liking. And so God is telling you and me that we're to be a holy temple, not a worldly temple, not a, individual stones that are pursuing our own ideas. But Lord, you're going to build me into this holy temple fitted together with your people. That's rarely easy or comfortable, but being a part of God's holy temple is so good. And you know what it's like. Many of you do being fitted together in a way. Oftentimes it's not always the case, but what keeps us from from being fitted together is we just don't want to change. We don't want to surrender. We're like, eh, And God is saying, I'm I'm asking you to be, I'm commanding for you to be a holy temple in the Lord set apart. Are you building your life on the cornerstone? Are you one of those rocks that's fitted together? Or is Jesus just a filler? Is Jesus just a sideshow, a sometimes priority? Because if we're not centered on the solid foundation of the cornerstone, then we're going to crumble you've got to be that little rock on the big rock. Where are you building your house? Where are you building your home? The holy walls fitted together in the body of Christ. There's such a temptation to just be rogue, to just be separate, to just say, I don't know where I fit. Instead of saying, Lord, I know I fit with your people. It tells me right here. It, it, it's hard for me but but I do fit according to your design, according to your commands. The final point is the holy house's dweller because we can talk about the foundation and the walls, but who lives in the house? What does it say in your Bible at the very end of the chapter? God and the, spirit. the spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who dwells in this holy house. He dwells in you and me. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter three verse 16. It's a question for you. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So that kind of question is, it's, it is a question, but it's like, don't you know that the Holy spirit lives in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The corner, the, found, the cornerstone, the foundation, the walls of the living stones. This is the church. And it's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The church is empowered by the Spirit of God. This Holy Spirit lives in the house. It's not a hollow house. It's a house filled with the Spirit. And that's individually because the Lord lives in you. But it's also collectively that as the church We are the home of the Holy Spirit. When you build something, does it matter who you're building it for? I built a necklace holder for my mom when I was a a little kid. It was really just a piece of wood that I stained, and then I took some little hooks, and I just screwed them into the board, and then you could hang it up and hang your necklaces on it. And, and it was pretty pathetic, right? <laughs> but I really, I remember really wanting it to be good because of who it was for. It wasn't like, I I mean, I was a really great little kid who wanted it to be just sanded and right just for my own sense of accomplishment. But I knew that I was giving it to my mom, And I wanted it to be a really good necklace holder. You still have that necklace holder? I think she probably does. (laughs) Maybe she can even bring it for you. She probably won't let you hold it because it's too precious to her. She's like, you give me back that necklace holder. Who you build for really matters, doesn't it? This holy house of God is built for the spirit. It's built for God himself. And so we might be willing to be shoddy with our lives or disconnected or, you know, for our own sake and say, I know, I know that's the way it is, but I just struggle so much. But will you then say no to God and say, this is your house. This is the blueprint that you drew. I didn't come up with this. This is what you desire. Will I, will I go my own way? Because this holy house is your temple. It's, it's your delight, I hope that your home is a place where you can really just take the light. You take rest. You take good pleasure. As it says earlier in this book, you and I are the good pleasure of God. Can God just come home? Can he be home and say, these are my people. This is the habitation of, of, of my spirit. We are being shaped into that dwelling place of the Holy spirit himself. What an honor, what a miracle. Does the unbelieving world know that about us? I mean, maybe the whole concept of having the spirit live in us is is too mystical or spiritual for some of them, but do they know that the church isn't just some walls, but it's the people of God being put together so God actually lives in them and he's, he's pouring through them and pouring out of them. The dweller of the holy house, the dweller in the holy house is the spirit of God himself this design of the Lord. Oh, how good it is. And I know that a lot of things get in the way we get in the way. Sometimes the enemy gets in the way, but are you constantly and continually praying like God make me and make the church like what it's supposed to be? Like, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think the church is what it's supposed to be. If I gave the church a report card, ooh, it would be so ugly. It would just people say, Oh, the church is great. No, we, we, we stink. We're not doing very well. And how do I get to that conclusion? I open up the Bible and I'm like, is that who we really are? And I know God is good. And I know this is his design and I know he will be glorified, but we get pretty obstinate. We're living stones. We're living sacrifices and we keep crawling off the altar. And the Lord says, this is my design. Keep resubmitting ourselves. Lord, make us who we were designed to be for your glory, for your good pleasure in our lives. If you are not a part of the holy house, if you're not one of those rocks in the wall, you're building on the sand. You don't know of the goodness of God. You don't have to be tossed to and fro with this world and how it just doesn't know which way is up or down. You can come and have the truth of God Now the truth really doesn't always draw us, but you know what does draw us is his kindness. His kindness leads us to repentance. Jesus isn't just a truth giver. He's not just here's right and wrong. Just deal with it. He's the savior who paid for your sin on the cross so that you could be forgiven so that you could be free. And when you submit to him as Lord, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he saves you and he brings you into his house. And it's not just a house that's physical. It's a spiritual household. He fills you. He walks with you. He brings you home to heaven when your day is due. That's wonderful grace. Will you build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ? Will you say, today, that's where my feet are going to be. That's where my stand, he's my standard. Not not me anymore. My thoughts have been polluted and and sideways for so long. Now I need the rock of Jesus and the rock of his grace in my life. Far be it for me to not tell you that you can believe upon his name and be saved if you've come among his church today. and and seen and tasted of his goodness. Receive him. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to be sons of God, right? Even to them who believe on his name. But you got to believe, you got to receive. The gift is extended. So reach out and take it. God, I pray to you right now. And I know that, Father, we're here in in the Spirit, We're here because of Jesus. And there's some building going on, Lord, and I pray that it's happening upon you and upon all that you are. Lord, forgive us when we build anywhere else but on you. Lord, all of our lives, all of our time, all of our loves, all of our affections, all of our hopes, Lord, may they be found on you and in you. You've never let us down, Lord. You've always been the solid, faithful one. And so I pray that you would bring that faithfulness to our remembrance as we tell you, Lord, that you're our rock. Amen.